You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, in this coronavirus world that we're in at the moment, uh, coming early on the tram in the darkness, it was very quiet, unusual, because uh, increasingly there have been more and more people at that early hour on the public transport. But today it was purely tradies, no uh, abandoned kind of uh, revellers from the night before. Even the homeless people seem to have uh, disappeared into the woodwork. So obviously it's having an effect. But today we're not going to concentrate on coronavirus. We're going to concentrate on all the other stuff that's been put aside. And first up, we're going to talk to Margaret Sinclair from Refugee Action Collective Victoria. G'day, Marg. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Annie. Good yeah. to be here. Yeah, and uh, the reason why we're talking to you in particular is because a couple of weeks ago, the uh, Refugee Action Collective uh, Victoria held a uh, a rally outside the Mantra in uh, Preston. And uh, can you tell the uh, listeners why in particular you'd pick that place? Well, we picked that place because it was rather easy for the refugees locked up inside to be able to see us. And so the solidarity with what they're going through in their incarceration um, was a lot more poignant. Um, They're kept in a situation that's completely different from any other locked detention centre because they don't have access to um, being able to go outside for fresh air and sunshine. Um, They don't have access easily to... uh, the sorts of facilities that a detention centre might have, such as um, a gym. They have access to a gym, but they don't have um, a lot of time in that gym like they might have in a detention centre. And uh, just the access, I suppose, to healthcare, which is what all of these people who are locked up in the mantra are supposed to be having, um, it's uh, just a lot more restrictive. Yeah, it's interesting. I think people uh, will have forgotten, but uh, the, those, those people in uh, who are kept in this hotel have been brought uh, over from Manus and Nauru because of medical concerns. Exactly. Every single person had been approved for uh, transfer to Australia under the Medivac legislation. So they're here for medical care, but they can't... Uh, they couldn't have actually arrived in Australia for that medical care unless they had passed stringent uh, security screening first. 
So not only does every person locked up in the mantra uh, need to have that medical care, and that's already been identified, but it's also been identified that there's actually no security risk. So the biggest question would be why they're being treated as though they're criminals and they need to be locked up, uh, locked up at all. Well, the medical uh, medical concerns, they range from uh, mental health to physical health. Yes, absolutely. But being locked up long term in Australia, the mental health is, of course, deteriorating once again. So um, it's counterproductive to lock up people who who basically just need freedom to be able to access the medical care that they want and to have less mental stress pressure. Now, because the Medivac uh, uh, legislation that allowed the people to come was actually a a sort of a victory in uh, the uh, terrible litany of... uh, uh, wrong-headedness in the Australian um, approach to refugees, it could be said. And uh, people will have thought, well, these people have come and they're going to get the medical attention they need. Uh, the government subsequently shut the door on uh, allowing people to come and get the medical attention they need. But the people that are here and are now stranded at the hotel... People will be unaware, I think, that uh, except for the work that you people are doing, that they're actually not receiving the medical attention they're supposed to be getting. Absolutely. So for some of the people locked up in the hotel, they've only had one or two appointments over the past several months. Um, um, Most people, when they require surgery, they're being told that they're on a waiting list, but they don't know how long they're going to be waiting for because nobody's given them a date for the surgery. Um, some of the surgery is you know, quite important and um, obviously unavailable to them in Papua New Guinea or Nauru. So just that constant waiting again for something that could have been resolved very quickly in a day or two is uh, very frustrating to everyone in there. Do you know how many people this actually is affecting? Well, for people who arrived under the Medivac bill, there's um, there were about 50, 58, 59 people in the mantra who came from Manus. There's several more now who had come from Nauru. Um, in Mitre, there's um, at least 40 or 50, probably more now, who had... Um, arrived under the Medivac legislation. So there's well and truly probably you know, over 100 people in, in Melbourne alone, let alone um, about the same number in Brisbane. And uh, yeah, most, most people seem to be waiting and it's only a small handful who've actually received the treatment that they were um, signed to come over and actually receive. So how long have they been there? Uh, at the Mantra Hotel, the first um, group of people arrived uh, late July and they're still there and it's sort of been, a, I suppose, a dribble-in process ever since. So uh, as planes arrived, people seemed to be split up between Brisbane and Melbourne and then in Melbourne between Mitre and Mantra. But yes, the, long, the people who've been there the longest arrived late July. Has the government made any statements around this? Um, I suppose most 
most uh, official correspondence from the government says that uh, people are receiving treatment. But when you talk to the people uh, themselves, uh, it doesn't really seem to be a case. So there's a, I suppose there's a, a real divide or a gap between what the government's saying is happening and what's actually happening on the ground. And what do you, what's the Refugee Action Collective for Victoria saying should happen? I think, firstly, what should happen is that the doors should be opened up. There's really no reason to be treating people as though they are criminals when they've passed security screening. And there are a number of people who've refused medical treatment on the basis of they don't want to be handcuffed or held by security either side and fog-marched into a specialist appointment or into a hospital and out again. So actually keeping them locked up is impeding um, their access to proper medical health care. So that would be the first thing, just to open up the doors. There's no reason for CERCO to be there because these people are not a risk. The second thing is that these people need to be given the medical treatment that they were... um, flown here to receive and I don't think either of those requests or demands are unreasonable Um, in fact it would be beneficial both for the people who came here and for the public purse. Yeah that's interesting I was just going to move to that Uh, a couple of things there the government persists in characterising the refugees as criminals and uh, on and they uh, characterise it as uh, uh, to do with uh, national security. Uh, however, this national security uh, for these people and the protection of the nation means that the uh, cost is uh, just astronomical. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of large private companies who are making a very, very huge profit because the amount, the amount of money that the government's paying isn't just you know for healthcare or accommodation and that sort of thing. It goes, first of all, to the large companies such as um, you know, the Mantra Hotel or to Serco or to IHMS. And a fair proportion of that money is then in the pockets as, as such as, as profit. And then the the other money gets spent on um, the actual accommodation and and care and whatever. Uh, the um, public, how can they uh, involve themselves in uh, bringing this to the uh, attention of the rest of the community? Well, that's probably a, a tricky one because I think the rest of the community has had the message from the government drummed into them so well and so thoroughly over such a long period of time that to debunk the myths and to um, have people understand that refugees are just human beings who have gone through terrible experiences which make their home countries unsafe, that's a a really huge hurdle. I think just um, the ordinary conversations we have day to day uh, with people uh, in our immediate environment, they're important writing letters to the newspaper, writing or phoning up your local MPs, that's also important. And I've taken to wearing um, pro-refugee T-shirts as much as possible out in the public, not just at rallies, but in other places too. So that can help spark conversations. There is uh, an important rally coming up, Palm Sunday. 
Absolutely. So on the 5th of April, uh, obviously on Palm Sunday, 2pm at the State Library. Uh, it's always been a large fun on the calendar for um, refugee rights and it's a huge call for justice for not just people who are in locked detention but for people who are in the community, in community detention, on temporary protection visas and um, people who have uh, had their SRSS payments cut just for everyone who's been impacted by all the, um, all the policies and practices of the current government. So that's Sunday, April the 5th, 2pm at State Library. That's right. Thanks for talking to us today, Margaret. Thank you very much for having me on. No, it's not about a race, not just about a race. It's more about the mighty, mighty dollar. Where we used to have a park, a people's place, a nature's ark. Now there stands a monument to greed and plunder. What's happened to our park, our very special park, created for the people's recreation? Now it's concrete and cement, so many million dollars spent Just to please the multinational corporations No, it's not about a race, not just about a race It's more about the mighty, mighty dollar Where we used to have a park, a people's place, a nature's ark Now there stands a monument to greed and plunder What's happened to the trees, those proud and noble trees That for more years than we know we took for granted They've been ripped out of the ground by those money-grubbing clowns And it's tarmac in its place that they have planted No, it's not about a race, not just about a race It's more about the mighty, mighty dollar Where we used to have a park, a people's place, a nature's ark now there stands a monument to greed and plunder What's happened to our peace, our chance of quiet release From the noise and hubbub of our busy city Now you can't get through the day without earplugs, so they say And the cracks in houses don't look very pretty No, it's not about a race, not just about a race it's more about the mighty, mighty dollar Where we used to have a park A people's place, a nature's ark Now there stands a monument to greed and plunder Well, is this the story's end? No, I don't think so, my friend As long as we have breath, we'll keep the struggle Till we win back Albert Park our people's place, our nature's ark You'll reap just what you've sown in strife and trouble No, it's not just about a race, not just about a race It's more about the mighty, mighty dollar Where we used to have a park, our people's place, our nature's ark Now there stands a monument to greed and plunder Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon. 
because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. And you might have heard that uh, the uh, uh, litigation that had uh, come out of the... uh, events in Palm Island that brought Lex Watton to everybody's attention when he was gathered up uh, as a supposed ringleader of a, 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 a riot, as it was called, uh, in Palm Island after the death of a, uh, a First Nations person uh, at the hands of a well, in the police station, uh, it's just been settled and uh, $30 million were allocated to the uh, settlement uh, to the people of Palm Island uh, as uh, it, it was characterised as a racist uh, assault on the uh, community. Uh, and uh, so that is indeed a victory of sorts. And uh uh, and uh, Lex Watton has been vindicated, which is a great and uh, wondrous thing. Lex Watton, a wonderful fellow, he came to uh, 3CR, got the uh, opportunity to actually interview Lex. Um, uh, a very uh, um, uh, uh, a, a great experience because he was a very uh, he's a sort of person that's uh, very got a very calm centre, which is uh, quite. Uh, wonderful to uh, come across. The other thing was the uh, song that we just heard uh, about Albert Park and the uh, uh, Grand Prix. Of course, uh, the Grand Prix has been vanquished by the coronavirus, so that's a pretty interesting affair. Last week on Solidarity Breakfast, we went out to Werribee uh, at the uh, demonstration against uh, a, a proposed toxic dump in Wyndham coming out of the uh, the PFAS uh, debacle that has uh, surfaced literally at the uh, tunnel project, the uh, leftovers from uh, the uh, um, fire uh, retardants that were used to uh, subdue Coot Island in the 90s, uh, being dug up and found to be completely carcinogenic and a whole range of other things. Uh, It's now got these huge amounts of uh, toxic waste that has to be got rid of uh but and of course the uh what we reported last week was that their locals right up to the council are incredibly angry about the idea that their local member tim Pallas, who is uh victoria's treasurer should be even allowing of the consideration of uh, the toxic uh soil being put into his own electorate uh i went to an event over the week where Tim Pallas was actually uh, doing a precursor to the uh, lead-up to the budget, the Victorian budget, which is coming out May the 5th. And uh, I asked him a question, so I thought I'd let you know what his answer was about uh, the toxic dump. So let's hear it. You the tunnel and the toxic waste. Sorry, this lady has been trying. Yeah, the tunnel and the toxic waste. Yep. Uh, what, what's going to happen there? Oh, well, uh, we're uh, still waiting for Transurban and their joint venture partners to come back with a uh, decision about where they intend locating this waste. I'll make the point again 
that our contractual terms are very clear. The responsibilities for the management of this waste is Transurban and their joint venture partner. Um, uh, we, of course, do have a responsibility, and that goes both to the environmental safeguards and also to the uh, planning overlays uh, that are appropriate for such siting. Uh, but we haven't yet heard back from them, and we're still waiting. Uh, and I think uh, Victorians have got every right to wonder when they're going to be able to come to a point of uh, clarity with communities who, understandably, are a little bit um, nervous about what this all means. So but Wyndham, Wyndham site is actually owned by the government, so... Yes, uh, but uh, what does that mean? What's you can actually, as they said at the rally, you could just say no. Uh, I could just say no, uh, and that would have a profound effect upon both the state's contractual liability but also the capacity for the state to deliver on this vital project. People at Wyndham uh, can be assured, however, that this will not be a permanent facility and it will only be used in emergency circumstances. And uh, uh, there are many of these facilities in place and, to the best of my knowledge, none of them have been used yet for the uh, so-called emergency situation. What do you this decision has been made, clearly. Well, I'm, You're calling on Transurban to do it. They're dragging their feet. Well, I'm, I'm... Understandably, yes, I am. I, I think uh, the community gets uh, increasingly uh, concerned about the delays that are implicit in this. Uh, whilst this project, from a, a construction and a design point of view, is 40% uh, complete, you know, th there's a big bit of work that yet needs to get underway, and we expect that uh, project to be delivered as the contract stipulates, uh, by 2022. And uh, we need uh, Transurban and their joint venture partner to uh, uh, finally uh, come to a point of conclusion around uh, what they're going to do in respect of this. And uh, 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 I've got to say, uh, I think the government's patience is wearing thin. Well, there you go. And there was another piece of gossip that came out this week that apparently uh, another site that might be under... Uh, review for this particular toxic uh, waste is near Bacchus Marsh and now that the peop now the people in around Bacchus Marsh are beginning to uh, rally together to defend themselves from toxic waste so let's it's a watching brief no doubt about it You're listening to Over the Wall on 3CR, broadcast as part of Solidarity Breakfast. The Morrison-led coalition government has plans to expand the cashless welfare card, and in the last two weeks we've spoken to Catherine Wilkes from Stop the Cashless Welfare Card Australia and the Say No 7. The new plans before the Senate are to increase the rollout, including into the Northern Territory, but also national expansion of the cashless welfare card to increase numbers beyond the current limits. And this increase in numbers gives the government the momentum it's looking for to make the trial into a more permanent focus and to expand out nationally, which has already been alluded to by members of the government. The cashless welfare card is operated by a private company called Inju and is currently being trialled in Sejuna in South Australia, East Kimberley in WA, the Goldfields in WA and Harvey Bay in Queensland. 
It quarantines 80% of a person's income, support payments and the money on the card cannot be used to withdraw cash from automatic teller machines or FPOS terminals. The rest is paid into their bank account. Let's speak to Catherine now to get her advice about how we can get involved in campaigns to stop the government voting towards a national rollout of the cashless welfare card in Australia. Coming back to that bill through the the Senate, uh, you mentioned to me during the week that financial nominee status is to be removed in the bill, and this means carers who currently can access funds on behalf of disabled people to pay their bills will stop. And this is a a worry due to the fact that many who are disabled that have nominees, these nominees can't use the card, maybe cannot even move, and the injured terms and conditions are clear that no one else is allowed to use your card, so nominees would no longer be able to manage the money of those who they care for, pay their bills, or buy their food, etc. Well, this is it. I mean, people granted financial nominee status were able to use the person's card to do everything. With injured terms and conditions, it's very strict. You cannot use somebody else's internet portal, access their account, or use their card. So with removal of that, what's going to happen to those disabled people that are unable to use CART? It's mortifying to think, what are they supposed to do? (laughs) Who's going to be allowed to care for them? We haven't had any answers to those questions as yet. No doubt it'll come up in debates, do you know what I mean? And we'll be listening to the government's response in the debates. We've got a disability Royal Commission at the moment where we're hearing terrible stories about the way people with disability have been treated and yet we have a bill up to further discriminate against the basic human rights of disability, um, people yep. with disability to have their nominated person assist them. It's just ludicrous. But we need to get it out there. That this And this is really difficult because unlike the government, we don't have the media right, behind us. You know, we have some media that tries and get some stories out, but how do you go up against a, a well-oiled spin mm. machine? <laughs> but we keep fighting. We keep fighting. We keep putting out the truth because that's all we can do. We keep sharing stories of the people that are on the card and their experiences with it. And you mentioned that you know one thing people can do with campaigns is to contact representative members. And who are some of the politicians in in Parliament that you think are supporting okay, the issues? So Everybody needs to contact Jackie Lambie's office and email her, write to her, phone her, whatever, in Canberra. Be respectful. Jackie Lambie's office and Central Alliance offices. Now, Rebecca Sharkey, Sterling Griffin, Rex Patrick. Contact those guys because they're the guys that are holding the vote at the moment. They're, you know, we don't know which way they're going. Labor are voting against it. The Greens have staunchly stood against it all the way through. So it's up to the crossbench. We know One Nation is supporting it. So it's up to Centre Alliance and Jackie Lambie. And another thing people can do too, I see it all the time, what can we do, how can we protest? Go and protest outside Centrelink offices this week. Protest, picket, MPs offices. Get out there, people. If you don't want the card to come, we need to fight it and, and make these politicians see that people don't want it. They don't want to be controlled. They don't want to lose their human rights. They don't want to be lose their autonomy. And their legal protections are diminished because the laws have been changed, especially to put people on the card. 
which is wrong. Another thing that's occurred is the ORIMA evaluation, which is... That's 2017, yeah. and that report was absolutely debunked by every other academic. It was just smashed, and it was cherry-picked. Okay, so for instance, when you hear Scott Morrison say, 41% of people drank less, right? <laughs> when you actually break it down and you go through the figures, it says over a two-year period they spent all this money on this report, and it comes down to eight people said they drank less. When you actually break it down, eight people over two years said they drank less. But also the questions, the way they were framed, people couldn't put in that they don't drink at all. So the way the questions were framed, people found themselves unable to buy the necessities for their children. You know, they, they just skimmed over all of those figures and they couldn't buy stuff for school and they couldn't do this or that. So we just ignored that in the report. They just cherry-picked bits and pieces. And they're still cling- they clinging to this report, aren't they? Oh, they're still clinging to it. It's just crazy. And the Auditor General's report came out and just smashed it as well. And it's like, oh, and they're just ignoring that one. We'll just sidestep that one and keep quoting Orima report, which is dead. Which you know is what I mean? a frequent habit of the government recently to sidestep Auditor General's reports, such as the report <laughs> into sports clubs. Can you talk oh, about yes. some of the things in the Auditor General's report in, well, into the cashless card? You know, with the cashless debit card, they couldn't establish that it was actually having any positive impact. Yeah, the Auditor General's report just points out that it's not working. It's not working the same as the basics card didn't work. What are some of the campaigns and pages that you'd recommend people to be aware of? We do have links. There's a, a page called SN7 Resources on Facebook, and people can go there and get all of the articles and all of the reports that we've got so far. No Cashless Welfare Debit Card Australia Group. And we've got pages like in Hinkler and Kalgoorlie. We've got pages set up around the country for people in different regions. But people can protest themselves in their own region. Do you know what I mean? We've done a lot of protesting. We've gone to Canberra. We were in Canberra at the beginning of the month. You recently visited Linda Burney and Rachel Seward? Yeah. And how did that go? That was really good. We were able to uh, present some stuff to Linda Burney and stuff to Rachel Seward. I was able to forward stuff from people that are on the card up here in the Hinkler region, you know, meet with the ministers so that we can get the message across, which is what we've been doing for five years. I did meet with uh, Jackie Lambie before Christmas and took a couple of people on the card with me. We met with uh, Rebecca Sharkey and Sterling Griff as well. We took some people on the card there. And recently we organised a meeting for nine people in Kalgoorlie to be able to meet with Jackie while she was in Kalgoorlie. So we're trying to get their voices heard to the relevant people, you know. People need to stand up around the country and, and I can't tell them how to do it except for get on the phone, email or go and make a sign and stand outside MP's office and say no. (laughs) There's also a current petition on change.org that's got around 11,000 signatures asking for Jackie Lambie not to vote for the card and that can be found online at change.org. Yeah, 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 that's um, that's an independent one that's been put up and that's doing really well. 11,000, we got one tabled before Christmas that was 9,500 and then somebody else has done this one and it's at 11,000 still going, so... Catherine, we thank you again for your 
time on Over the Wall and on 3CR. You've been a, a regular speaker and we hope to have you on again as we continue this fight and and thank you for all you're doing. That's okay. Just, um, yeah, people want information. Go to SN7 Resources on Facebook and it's just capital S, capital N, number seven, Resources, and you'll find all of the information you need on that page. It's not an interactive page, it's a resource page. So it's set up so the articles and all the reports are put there and you can scroll through and just grab what you need and read it. So everybody needs to read up fast. <laughs> this is a public service announcement. You're listening to 3CR Radio. How important is the sale of public housing assets to the budget? Um, well, not at all. They're not uh, anything that the state has spent any time uh, looking at. And, uh, you know, if we're talking about uh, a public housing asset being sold, can I assure you um, that we are in the business of buying more public housing assets uh, not having a net reduction in our housing stock. In fact, uh, we need to do much more in this space. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got uh, Samantha Radnam, who's the uh, leader of the Greens in Victoria. G'day, Samantha. How are you? Good morning. Great to be with you. And uh, we were just listening to the Treasurer, Tim Pallas, saying that uh, they are fully backing public housing and notice he said public housing, not social housing. Uh, but there's been a parliamentary inquiry into uh, homelessness going on in Victoria and I've been to many uh, rallies where public housing assets are being sold over the last year and in fact there's going to be a rally today at a at a place where people, public housing tenants are being kicked out uh, for a new private development. Um, can you tell us what's going on in this in parliamentary inquiry? Certainly. So there was a parliamentary inquiry into what the government called the public housing renewal programs. They announced this a few years ago and essentially what they said was they wanted to upgrade some public housing, but to do that they were going to sell off the majority of the public housing estates. There were about 10 that were listed at that time, 10 estates. It's increased to about 13 now. And those those plans are still going ahead and uh, Walker Estate, where there was a uh, rally organised today, but unfortunately it's been cancelled, given what's been happening in the world at the moment. Um, but the activism protests continue around Walker Estate, there's Grand Place in Brunswick, and the list goes on. Those sites are still being earmarked for privatisation, where about two-thirds of them essentially get sold off to private hands. Uh, and we lose that land, which is a public housing asset, which is quite contrary to what the Treasurer has just said, and that's our big concern. We actually need more land to build more public housing, given that there are, you know, over 50,000 applications. That's over about 90,000 people waiting for new 
public housing and yet we're selling off the very land that we need to build more housing. They're very devoted to the notion of public-private uh, partnerships, which is a very neoliberal sort of approach to uh, uh, social uh, infrastructure. Uh, in fact, th- they are still very committed to it. That's right. And we're seeing that across the board. We've seen it with public housing. We've seen it with the toll roads they want to build. And right across the government agenda, um, and it's becoming more apparent just how committed they are. And it's very worrying with an issue like housing. You mentioned a parliamentary inquiry. There's another one at the moment looking at the issue of homelessness. You know, in Victoria, there's over 20,000 people on any given night who are homeless. We've got 80,000 people or more on the waiting list, and that list just keeps growing month by month. And at the same time, we're selling off the land and the assets that we have to house people and keep people safe, it feels like it's the absolute wrong direction. Now, it's quite clear that the um, campaign that has been going on consistently for a number of years now uh, about homelessness and also about the sell-off of public assets, public housing assets, has been having some effect because their language has changed, hasn't it? Yes, I think it's a good observation and one that we have been observing as well. Uh, and I think the pressure is starting to have some effect. We've got to still, we've got to keep going. At the end of uh, 2018, just on the eve of the last state election, after the pressure, because the community, uh, community organising, the protests at the public housing sites that are earmarked to be sold were getting quite loud and uh, obviously garnering the attention of the government. Because of that community pressure, the government announced that they would build a 1,000 new public housing homes, uh, which was a step in the right direction, but goes obviously nowhere far enough to the scale that we need. The Greens are pushing for at least 40,000 homes in the next six years as a starting point. We'll need another 40,000 after that because the numbers tell us when you've got 80,000, 90,000 people at the moment waiting for housing and that list is going to just keep growing, we're going to have to build housing on a large scale if we're going to actually address the problem. So 1,000 was good and it was a result of community pressure, but we've got to keep that community pressure up and get the government back at the table talking about public housing. And you're right, they change their language to social housing. That's another worry because it feels like they're walking away from their commitment to public housing. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, in actual fact, the devil is always in the detail. And that was what I found so fascinating about Tim Pallas being able to say so confidently that uh, they're not getting rid of public housing. They're uh, increasing it and feeling quite comfortable saying it because he's at a distance. When he says that, he's failing to take into account that when they say a 1,000 new public housing places, where they're building them. Because the thing about these estates that they want to selling off is that they may not have been places or land that people wanted particularly before, but they're in really uh, lucrative, uh, salubrious places right now. That's right. You know, one of the things that 
one of the strengths of our system is that at least with the little public housing that we have, some of it is in areas which has got good community connections. So people are connected to employment and uh, good community facilities uh, and you know good neighbourhoods around them, supportive neighbourhoods around them as well. I've been talking to people who said, I've lived here for 40 years, my GP is down the road, you know, I'm being forced to move somewhere and I don't know where that's going to be. So it feels like they're essentially treating, you know, public housing tenants as second-class citizens, saying, oh, we can build this somewhere far away and not thinking about your quality of life and access to services, and that's run right through the agenda for the last few years, in the very least. Yeah, they're creating, they're deliberately creating an underclass. That's right. And the other issue is also moving, you're right about moving away from the language of public housing. Uh, they, you know, are thinking less about the government actually managing those tenancies. Um, community housing providers do provide a really valuable service and we support them, but what they seem to be doing is transferring a lot of the public housing over to the community housing sector. And, you know, essentially the government's washing its hands of its responsibility. And what the Greens say and what we'll keep saying is that it's the government's role and responsibility to provide housing to make sure that everyone has a safe and affordable place to call home and you can't walk away from that. What do you think, um, from from your involvement, because you are the um, Greens, you're not just the leader of the Victorian Greens, you're actually, uh, that's part of your portfolio area, uh, housing. Um, what what are you observing coming out of this particular parliamentary uh, um, investigation? What, what What's the tendencies? Yeah, so the inquiry at the moment is focusing on homelessness. Um, we've been hearing from a range of organisations working at the coalface, and it's been really interesting, actually. We're about, i say, about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the hearings now. Uh, what I've heard repeatedly is that the things that we've been trying to do to patch up the system, and that's what it's been, patchwork on a system that's fundamentally broken and failing day by day, is that those incremental solutions and the patchwork are just not working anymore. And what you actually need is the bigger, bolder solutions like the big build. We have to actually build more houses if you want to solve issues like homelessness and precarious housing. So I'm hearing more and more. Uh, we've heard from the big agencies um, who are providing frontline services who are, I think, also realising that you know, the government's promised that they'll just throw some money here and there. It just doesn't cut it anymore. And we really have to put pressure on government to think about the big solutions. And that's something that we're going to keep the pressure on. Well, considering that they're um, completely wedded to the notion of public-private um, uh, partnerships as an instrument for uh, dealing with uh, government responsibility, uh and which is completely, and that's why they think social housing works so well. But the problem is that the fundamentals of social housing and there, there is that uh, selling off public land means that uh, you're selling the family jewels, really. And two, um, social housing doesn't, uh, that's run as a business in a sense. And uh, people who have um, particular amounts of money uh, they may not have, they may not fit the criteria of those people and so they will still be homeless. That's Is there right. a move so towards policy change at all? In terms of in the policy change, well, it feels like the government's moving towards a policy change of moving towards more community housing versus public housing. So public housing is when it is the 
landlord, it manages the tenancy versus an external organisation. So it definitely feels like the government's moving that way. And it's on the back of uh, what's happening internationally. But those international examples also show us what's happened in the UK is that, yes, you lose that land and you never can get that land back ever again. Uh, On top of the 10 to 13 sites they've got on the list at the moment, there's another, um, you know, over 100 sites which are public land which could be suitable, some of them really suitable for uh, public housing and building more housing, and they're selling off the surplus, what they call surplus land. So we think that's the wrong move as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's worrying what policy direction that they're moving in. And you're right about one of the worries about moving to this new model where an external organisation actually manages the tenancy is that you have less uh, control and regulation about how that tenancy is managed. So one of the worries is... Um, will those organisations have more power to um, terminate a lease, for example? Are there more protections in the current system? And we would argue public house, the public housing model is the one that guarantees the most protections uh, for people and we should be giving the maximum protections to people um, who need public housing. It's interesting to me because I've had conversations with some people who have said, you know, they built public housing because of the shortfall uh, after the wars. Uh, and it was always designed for uh, low-paid workers. Uh, now that we've got a system that encourages casualisation, insecurity of wo- uh, work uh, and, um, in, uh, and underemployment, you'd think that this was a perfect opportunity f- and very high public, uh, private rental market. This would be a perfect Uh, climate for exactly the same policy direction? Yes, we certainly need it, which is why we're pushing for a big build and talking about building thousands of new homes over the next few years. Uh, We've got lots of community organisations saying you're going to have to build at least thousands a year to keep up with the current demand, and that's not even meeting the future demand. And yes, you're right, the models have changed over the years where they've moved to a model where they've looked at kind of the, the most vulnerable in the community, but that changes, you know, how we think about housing and what we think the government's role in providing housing is. But you're right, people, um, what's happening with housing affordability across the board, you know, in our entire system, it's making it just much harder and almost impossible, for example, for younger people to ever be able to own their own home. Um, Lots more people are in precarious employment, casualised employment, as you mentioned, uh, and it's much harder to um, be able to access the housing market. Even the rental market is becoming out of reach to people. And that's why we're seeing the increases in numbers of people who are homeless every day. So they're very linked. The issue of homelessness and housing affordability are inextricably linked. And until governments start to acknowledge that, that they are linked, that they can't just say we're going to build a a frontline service here, a homelessness shelter, and that's going to solve homelessness, until they admit that actually building more homes is a thing that will solve homelessness in the long term, we're not going to move forward, I think. I mean, if we look at it more positively, the Greens have got a plan for uh, solar-powered public housing, big build. That's right. So Adam Band asked, Federal leader announced, um, you know, one way of thinking about looking at the economic conditions, but also, you know, talking about the human right uh, that housing is. We should be thinking about a big build nationally, so 500,000 homes. Um, as I mentioned, going up into the last Victorian state election, 
we uh, pledge to build 40,000 over the next six years with another 40,000 beyond that. So we're starting to talk big numbers. Um, it has a huge impact on social outcomes for the community, for people's lives. It has economic benefits. And these are the type of programs we should be thinking about, not committing $16 billion to build toll roads that private companies get to make profits from us for decades to come. Uh, also, you're encouraging people to uh, put submissions in, a closing date for the uh, parliamentary inquiry into homelessness. That's right. So encourage people um, to get some submissions, get submissions in. Um, people who've had lived experience, organisations working uh, with our homelessness community, all encourage um, to provide feedback. It's really valuable. The inquiry is taking a deep dive look at the systems the problems that have given rise to this issue in the first place, not just the surface. So I'm hopeful that we'll get an in-depth look at the situation in Victoria and let's hope that and we'll be working towards getting uh, the big solutions on the table when that report is finalised. Yeah, because it's uh, the deadline's Monday the 16th, so get onto your computers and uh, look up uh, the parliamentary inquiry into homelessness in Victoria and you will be able to do a submission. Thank you very much for talking to me, Samantha. Oh, it's been a pleasure and thanks so much for covering this uh, crucial and critical um, area for the future of Victoria. Watermarks on the ceiling, I can see Jesus and he's frowning at me. I see a dead seal on the beach, the old man says he's already saved it three times this week. Guess it just wants to die, I would want to die too. With people putting oil into my air But to be fair, I've done my share Guess everybody's got their different point of view I was walking down Sunset Strip Phillip Island, not Los Angeles Got me some hot chips and a cool drink took a sandy seat on the shore there's a paper on the ground it makes my headache quite profound as i read it out aloud it said the great barrier reef it ain't so great anymore it's been raped beyond belief the dredges treat her like a whore I drank till I was sinking, sank till I was thinking that I'm thankful for this view. Drank till I was sinking, sank till I was thinking that I'm thankful for this view. 
Solidarity Bricky Team listener when coronavirus has succeeded where the Save Albert Park group was unable to succeed for decades, leaving us no doubt shattered listener. Our exciting, quiet social weekend mixing with the really important people at the privatised public park now vacant. What can we do today and tomorrow other than pop out and check the supermarket shelves? As empty as the feeling when we heard the great race is off. Hate to do this, but have to give credit where credit's due. Okay, we all enjoy that worn old joke. Is that the truth, or did you read it in the Herald Sun? Or as we know it, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. But Thursday, before the tragic news the Grand Prix was not so grand, spot on with the truth, front page wraparound promoting the Grand Prix, but willing to tell the truth. Melbourne's motor madness, it screamed. And it certainly is. A festival of fossil pollution, the biggest irony being the only way to get there is by public transport to watch the orgy of fossil and noise pollution. Still top marks to the whopping sin for acknowledging the madness. On the one hand, the public, uh, public coppers will benefit from not having to provide the free public transport. Well, not free to the public purse, public transport. But on the other hand, it would be only fair to up the subsidy we pay the Grand Prix organisation for bringing us this fun, fun, fun. A little token of compensation over and above the millions we've already handed them and which it would be unfair to seek a refund. Remember when former big state supremo Jeff Footinmouth assured us the Grand Prix would not require one cent of public money and he was correct. It's cost us trillions. Jeff's the bloke who also promised us the privatised electricity and gas companies freed from the bloated inefficient hand of the public sector would deliver super efficiency and lower prices leaving us to ponder what we'd be paying if it was still inefficient. Anyway, that's the Grand Prix for another year and good riddance. The streets and gutters around Albert Park will be flowing with the tears of distressed local residents. Having praised Lord Rupert of Wapping, it's a morning for praising those we might not normally praise. Despite the odd criticism we may have of the caring business class, we have to admire its unswerving commitment to the principles of laissez-faire market forces, competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice, the super-efficiency of the private sector, principles based on principle, the firm belief based on fact that business is the business of business. Government has no role in the market, especially if the government is involved in a little money earner, albeit a basic government service, then that service is no business of government. The private sector will run it so much more efficiently, save the community and the government just trillions. And as I say, we admire them for their dedication to that principle, their hatred of anything that looks remotely like the dead hand of socialism. Government, leave business to us. 
And then I'm just a little confused, and I have a strong feeling we all may just feel a little confused, listener, when as the impact of climate change that isn't climate change combined with coronavirus, which is coronavirus, sees the stock exchange crash and our master stock exchange in New York collapse due to viral panic, we find caring employers are so concerned about their workers who may have to take time off or quarantine themselves for a couple of weeks, they, they insist those workers must be paid by the government. The inefficient bloated hand of, but, 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 but what about market forces, laissez-faire competition? Well, the market is 100% behind this necessary initiative, intervention by government, and it, it would not be laissez-faire if we had to pay our workers for bludging at home, or, or grossly laissez-unfair if we did have to pay. And this stimulates the competition between our workers, many of whom are not our workers, but little individual businesses enjoying the benefits of laissez-faire market forces competition policy. Right. When we hear it explained so lucidly by the experts, we have to wonder why we even bother to think about economic matters, don't we? They're so complicated and we're so naive. For instance, I asked the Chamber of Profits how come caring employers make profit from these little individual businesses but have no responsibility for their non-entitlements. Because through the goodness of our heart, we give them the chance to obtain business for their business. The Troubler was the industry profits group said many caring employers and lazy avaricious workers were consulting each other over the issue. It's two-way consultation. The caring employer consults the lazy avaricious workers and tells him he is being stood down, oh, well, him or her is being stood down without pay. And the lazy avaricious worker then knows he is or she is, he or she is being stood down without pay. It's a two-way thing. Although the caring business class government has expressed concern for these workers who aren't workers, concern they have no sick leave, for instance, which is interesting again because the same government is running a case appealing a federal court decision that these workers were entitled to conditions like sick leave, the government accusing the workers of double-dipping. But at the moment, it looks like there's going to be a hell of a lot more than just double-dipping into the inefficient public coffers in the months ahead. On public coppers, the former Minister for Sports, Non Rorts, Budget for Marginals, McConning, angrily denied she had submitted more rorts, or sorry, grants, after the election was called. We didn't have to, she said. We'd already done it all. We all know how sometimes we hear something that sends the excitement and expectation levels through the roof. Like some mornings when the ABC presenter says, after 7.30 we'll be talking to... And Thursday morning, it was through the roof and into the stratosphere. After 7.30, we'll be talking to Matthias Rotten Tuba. Wee, I yelled. I think I even gave a little dance. Won't that be informative? And it was. Like, 
you attacked former Socialist Party big economic guru Wayne Swansong mercilessly when he failed to deliver the budget surplus he promised. So you must expect to be attacked mercilessly for failing to deliver the budget surplus you promised. There is no comparison, Matthias pointed out. Completely different circumstance. How can anyone compare the global financial crisis caused by the global financial crisis with the global financial crisis caused by the coronavirus, aided and abetted by a summer where nature decided to get a bit of its own back for what we're doing to it? if we're doing. Although Matthias didn't mention the nature bit because there's no scientific proof that what's happening is happening. Unlike the coronavirus, where I got the impression the scientific proof proof suggests it may have been started by the Socialist Party. Matthias knows every evil and problem in this world is down to the Socialist Party. He's so unpredictable. What an exciting start to the day. On that, as part of the bumbling responses of uh, UN of the US of the UN of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor tweeted that the coronavirus was fake news and was also an evil Russia or evil China or evil Iranian of all the or all of the above anti-US of plot in the same tweet. Fake news? It doesn't really exist. Evil plot? It does really exist. Then again, logic was never Donald's strong point. In fact, it's hard to think of any strong point unless stupidity is considered strong. Over there, the Democrat Party establishment went into free-fall panic, making the coronavirus response look measured when it looked like Bernie Sanders would become its candidate to ensure the hegemony of the largest capitalist economy, pulling out all stops in a desperate bid to prevent the disaster. So desperate, its solution is Joe Biden. God, imagine the panic if someone posed a genuine threat to the capitalist system. The capitalist system. Deliberate tax avoidance and accounting mistakes by true blue Aussies, filthiest rich of the filthy rich individuals and companies, is costing $772 million a year, according to the tax office. Okay, okay, for the sake of argument, we'll accept this low figure, but the accounting mistakes bit? Given these people pay a fortune to tax lawyers and tax consultants, it's either 100% tax avoidance or they should sue their lawyers for incompetence. Still, I'm sure they'd all tell us they pay every last cent of their legal tax requirements. Like our great true blue Aussie icon BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, forced to pay $125 million after the bloody High Court ruled, hiving off its true blue Aussie profits to its Singapore office didn't mean it could avoid paying tax on those profits. What thanks do they get for meeting all their legal tax requirements? Wasting everyone's time, forcing bloody huge profits to spend more on its tax lawyers to work out how to circumvent this ruling so it can return to paying every last cent of its legal tax requirements. Matters legal, finally, convicted sex predator Harvey Wine, Women and Songstein expressed remorse as the judge put him away for 23 years. And it was genuine remorse. Oh, not for the numerous women who've accused him. No, no, no. He was sorry for all the men in his position. Well, Donald himself said it all in that taped conversation on the bus. Wonder if Harvey saw the irony of being sentenced in the week of 
International Women's Day. Good morning. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to remind you about uh, uh, the uh, Easter uprising because, of course, Easter's just around the corner and uh, you may not be able to go to the Marxist conference this year because it has been cancelled because of coronavirus, but you might be able to go to a commemoration of the anniversary of the Easter Rebellion. And I've got Jake uh, Gallagher on the line. He's uh, a member of the Connolly Association, and uh, I thought we'd have a chat about uh, the Easter Rebellion and its importance. How are you? Uh, hello, yes, good morning. It's uh, a lovely morning out there. I'm doing well, yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm fine. Uh, it's actually quite quiet. Uh, maybe uh, coronavirus is going to make uh, Melbourne into the most livable city because it's now gentle, relaxed and uh, easy to get through. <laughs> Could end up being that way, you never know. You never know. <laughs> Um, uh, the Easter Rebellion, uh, in 1916, the uh, uh, epicentre of the post office in Dublin, uh, was uh, an important event in the Irish struggle for freedom. Do you want to talk to us about this? Uh, definitely. So um, on the 11th of April, uh, Easter Saturday, the Connolly Association are holding the yearly Easter commemoration which is at Melbourne General Cemetery. And um, obviously the main uh, point of Easter is obviously the Easter Rising, as you've said, where thousands of volunteers of the Irish Citizen Army and Irish volunteers took up arms against British occupation of Ireland. And one of the most significant leaders of that Rising was James Connolly, the man that our association is named after, a Republican, a trade unionist. He was leader of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, which included everything from musicians to labourers, and he was a Marxist as well. And uh, we are using his ideology and the things that he stood for in this association to hold a yearly commemoration off of the ideals that he fought for and trying to continue on that message here in Australia. Um, what was the time? What, sorry? The, uh, when, uh, it's the 11th of April at the General Cemetery, but what was the time? I didn't write it down. Uh, 12 midday. 12 midday. And, um, oh, which is probably, um, there's a reason for 12 midday, isn't there? Uh, 
just easy to get to. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the Irish, there's always some uh, poetical reason for things, but no, practicality <laughs> is part of it as well. Tell us about James Connolly's ideals. Well, I mean, he fought in the Easter Rising, which was uh, one of the big things about the Rising is the Proclamation of 1916, which we will be having read out in the day. And that was the first in the Western world, to my knowledge, that gave the absolute same liberties regardless of gender, religion, equal rights for all children of the nation, essentially. It was this uh, ideology for a new republic, for a new nation that would see absolute equality in the eyes of it for everyone. And uh, Connolly was a great proponent of these ideas. He believed pretty much that Although you could go about creating a republic, you would only ever be free if you truly dismantled all these elements of oppression under the economic system and the social system as well. He was a, quite a remarkable person. In fact, I've done readings around James Connolly. He's a remarkable person. And that whole event of the uh, armed uprising, having read around it, it was a terrifying period of history and the events were terrifying. I mean, you think about it uh, around... I mean, the idea of uh, uh, a fight like this in the streets, um, uh, it's its actually uh, really quite amazing to uh, rem- throw yourself back in time to that period. Definitely. And, it's, and obviously, as an organisation in Australia, we hold great significance to the you know, similar uprisings that have happened here. We are also, on the day we are passing by and paying respects at the uh, grave of uh, Peter Lawler. So, obviously, he was an Irishman. He was leader. Of, he was one of the leaders of the Eureka Rebellion and brother of James Finton uh, Lawler as well, who was a young islander in the rebellion of 1848. So, we try to keep the connection there. We have the Eureka flag flying on the day. It's a big part of it as well. That's it. I've been to the um, General Cemetery when there's been a walkthrough for uh, uh, a historical walkthrough. Very interesting to go through that cemetery because there are key uh, labour um, people in that cemetery. And in fact, there is a um, group of people who spend time resurrecting uh, and uh, maintaining those uh, graves uh, and uh, um, opening people's eyes to uh, the historical significance of these people. It's it's easy to lose sight of history, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, we're obviously trying to keep that alive in our own way and um, it's it's just what what we're trying to go for, I guess, trying to keep alive the spirit of rebellion, whether that be in Eureka, whether that be Easter, whether that be, you know, we've got um, a few other graves that we're stopping at as well. For example, we're stopping up at the grave at the grave of uh, Hugh Francis Brophy, who we did last year. That was the centenary of his death. He was a leading Fenian, and we're also stopping off because obviously this year is 2020. It is the centenary of the uh, death on hunger strike of the Lord Mayor of Cork, uh, Terence McSweeney. And his father is actually buried in Melbourne General Cemetery as well. So we've got a few graves to stop at and a few pieces of history to look at. We'll have various speeches about these people, about what they did, you know, whether that be for 
uh, Republicans and so on and so forth at the grave of John McSweeney or uh, Brophy. But for Peter Lawler, obviously, we'll have trade unionists, socialists, communists giving speeches about what these people did and why they're so significant, not only in history, but today. What's your involvement? How did you get to be part of this? Uh, I mean, I've always been a Republican. I moved over to Australia about uh, 11 or 12 years ago now, and uh, I just got in contact with the Connolly Association. I got involved in a few events, and now uh, at this event I'll be in the Colour Party, which is the full you know, uniformed parade where you have all the flags. And I think this year is the largest one that we've had, to my knowledge, ever, which is, you know, great to see. Oh, that's amazing. So what are you going to be in kit? Are you going to be in proper uh, old clothes and stuff? Yeah, we've got a uniformed colour party. So Tell me about all... that. Uh, so pretty much I think we're going to have um, various uniforms of, you know, different styles. We've got the main black, you know, sort of formal attire and then we've got a more... Uh, I would, how would you describe it? A more, not militaristic, but that kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I've read accounts of um, the actual events. Uh, it mm. uh, is was a very bloody affair, I'll have to say. Definitely. It's, uh, well, the rising itself, yeah, it was, there was... Uh, a great loss of life during it. It's without a doubt a very violent period, but as with anything, as with Eureka, as with, you know, you could point to any point of revolution in history, I suppose there is that element to it. Are you, since you are from Ireland itself, uh, when you came here, were you surprised at uh, how many connections from historic uh Irish historical uh um context uh runs through Australia, wide Australia? Definitely. It's it's like obviously growing up because my mother was Australian, so that's, you know, why we chose to came here of come here of all places. But growing up you obviously know about the connection with Ned Kelly and Eureka and that kind of stuff, but you don't expect it to be as sort of brought on mm. over here. Like, you don't necessarily expect it to be so proudly shown. Like, even the fact that, like, as a CFMEU member, for example, we saw I saw we've got, you know, T-shirts coming out for St. Patrick's Day that have Chucky Allah written on them and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's good to see. I wouldn't have expected it. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, and uh, I know it seems like a funny thing to say, uh, a while ago, uh um, Paul Keating, and there'll be people in the audience who would go boo his, but uh, one of the key things he did, which was really interesting, was actually make a uh, a, a visit, a, a public and uh, uh, a formal visit to Ireland as a recognition of uh, the amount of people who uh, came from uh, Ireland uh, as uh, their... Um, uh, ancestry 
as opposed to always doing formal visits to England, you know, because the tension, that was actually a really big deal. I I felt, because I come from Irish background, and that it's actually a big deal, I thought, making that public recognition. Yeah, no, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah, because uh, there is, um, uh, I mean, if you pick the saw of it, you'll find that the sectarianism uh, is only uh, a generation or two old in this in white Australia between mm. um, uh, the dominant uh, ideology, uh, the English, and uh, and all the different kind of uh, divisions that are created are actually uh, big uh, were built on. Uh, besides being built on the, the destruction of the first people, it's also built on the despising of the Irish. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely... I mean, in some elements, you could say it still exists to this day. Like, I know, you know, I've been told to go back home here, Paddy so-and-so before. So, like, it's it's an interesting thing. It's... Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's an important thing, and it's an important thing that you you guys are going to do this commemoration. So, do you want to give the audience the d- time and date again? Because uh, I reckon it would be worth going, and I think I'll go with my recorder. And uh, I love going through the and finding out more about what's uh, the people who are buried at that cemetery. It's it's the most amazing cemetery. Definitely, it's it's. Well worth visiting for anyone, even not going to this event. It's a lovely cemetery to see. But, um, yeah, so our event is the 11th of April at uh, Melbourne General Cemetery, 12 midday. And uh, in the words of Bobby Sands, uh, Irish hunger striker, everyone, Republican or otherwise, has their own part to play. No part is too great or too small. No one is too old or too young to do something. So even if it's just coming down for the day, We'd love to see you to anyone, if you're a Republican, trade unionist, or just a friend of the Republican movement, we'd love to see you along. We've got the main event, we've got the marches, and we've got the speeches. Then afterwards, we're going to the Drunken Poet Irish Pub, right next to Great Vic Market. We're going to have drinks, we're going to have some live rebel music, we'll have raffles. We're looking to maybe get a statuette of Bobby Sands. Uh, we're wow. going to have slates and Republican prison crafts from the 70s and 80s. So it should be a nice big event. And if you can come along, it'd be wonderful. Thanks very much for talking to us today. No bother. Thank you for having me on. Before too long, the one that you're loving, wish that he never met you. Before too long, he is nothing more sudden.
To the album launch of Kukatha Gundachamada Songman Dave Arden's Red Desert Man. Saturday, the 14th of March at the Thornbury Theatre, 859 High Street. Special guests include Kutcher Edwards, Young Warriors, BB Sabina, and Amos Roach. Head to the Thornbury Theatre website for more details and to book tickets. Dave Arden's Red Desert Man album launch, Saturday, 14th of March. A 3CR supporter. I just wanna be identified. I am a man from the Golden Clan. I have to say that's a great lineup. If you've got any time and a bit of cash, going to the Thornbury uh, Theatre today, uh, tonight, uh, to listen to those guys. Great, great thing to do. Uh, That's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, We uh, heard about the refugees that have been kept in the Mantra and other hotels uh, over here on the medevac arrangements in order to get some medical treatment, but it just seems to be stalled once again. Uh, Can't do anything right by refugees in Australia, it would appear. Uh, Moving on from that, we... uh, uh, heard about the cashless welfare card and the idea that uh, the gov- nas- uh, national government wants to roll it out nationally, which would be a sin. We moved on to uh, public housing and the uh, uh, parliamentary inquiry into homelessness in Victoria. They want you to uh, put in submissions before Monday. Uh, we moved on to this is the week that was and then about the... Uh, Connolly Association's commemoration of the Easter Rebellion up at the uh, General Cemetery, Melbourne General Cemetery, on the 11th of April at noon. It sounds fantastic. I think I'll go. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And uh, we're going to go out with a song by a person called Shelley Siegel, and it's called... Wish I was cool. Oh, I wish that I was cooler than I am. I wish I didn't care. I wish I 
wish I didn't go through all these things in my head when you're not there. Wish I didn't care, but I do. I wouldn't cry, but then it wouldn't be me you were loving anyway. I wish that I could say to you, Why can't you say I love you? Can't you say I love you? Say I love you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.